Welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature, does not take into consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs. Now, Shawnee today was crying before the podcast, <laughs> which is a change. I sound a bit raspy. Yeah, which is a change because <laughs> normally you cry during and after the podcast. But they were happy tears. They were happy tears. Do you want to share the news? It's Investing Compass team news. So Will got engaged and he was showing us the video of him proposing to his now fiance and it was very, very sweet. It was. It was it was a good video. He hid the ring behind flowers on a breakfast tray that he had delivered to him when they were on vacation together. Mm. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe we should put the video up on some sort of <laughs> some sort of site. Do not put Will on the spot like that. <laughs> well, Will can't talk right now, so I can say whatever whatever I want to him. But it is awesome news. Yes, so, congratulations, Will. Big congratulations to Will. But let's move on from your tears and the exciting news <laughs> to the episode today. All right. So it is very uncommon for government policy changes to have a clear, immediate, and direct impact on an individual's ability to consume and save. And especially for investors, we've seen many studies debunk the connection between economic growth and market performance. Yep. And that means that we're going to talk about tax cuts and we're going to talk about specifically the stage three tax cuts. The stage three tax cuts are a hotly debated policy item, and it's a policy rarity in that it has an immediate impact on individuals and their capacity to consume and save. So stage one and two, as you can probably imagine, have already been completed. And stage three focuses on high income earners. So the cuts remove the 37% marginal tax rate, and they drop the 32.5% marginal tax rate to 30%. And these tax cuts are proposed to be effective on the 1st of July, 2024. So in effect, it means that someone earning $46,000 will pay the same tax rate as someone earning $200,000. It also means that high-income earners will be receiving a significant bump to their take-home earnings, with those currently in the highest marginal tax rate receiving the sweetest deal. So if you make $150,000 a year, that means you will get an increase of $3,974 per year. If you're earning $180,000, it's an increase of $6,074 a year. And if you make $200,000, it's an increase of $9,074 a year. And just as a disclaimer, these amounts don't include the Medicare levy or the Medicare levy surcharge. So it's probably obvious, I guess, Shani, from that description, why there's been some controversy mm. around these tax cuts. So the argument to repeal this stage is that the removal of this tax bracket, as we discussed, is going to increase inequality in Australia. And the counter argument is that many Australians have experienced bracket creep when wage growth results in lower income workers creeping into higher brackets. Plus the everyone's already had a tax cut, where's mine argument. Yeah. And it was nice that you said creep without referring to me for once. I was looking at you though. So. I know you were. I know you were. <laughs> that that came across. So Shani did the counter argument. So I guess this means I'm going to do the counter counter argument. Mm -hmm. And that's basically just that wage growth has stagnated. And so this bracket creep isn't really a thing that's impacted many people. Okay. So you normally do the history lesson. Okay. 
I'm going to do the history. And I normally today. cry before the podcast, so <laughs> this is just like opposite and after. day and after. Yeah, exactly. After I make fun of you on the podcast for 20 minutes. Yeah, but I generally weep in the bathroom like a man <laughs> and don't sit out here. And do it. All right, so maybe we can take a lesson from the UK. Words I never thought I would utter. In 1696, they introduced a window tax in an effort to make the tax system more progressive. The tax outlined that you would pay a surcharge based on how many windows that you had in your home. Yeah. And the theory was that the poor would naturally have less windows, and so they'd be taxed less. And this may have been true in some rural areas, but in urban areas, a lot of people lived together in shared accommodation. And you know they just got way too much natural light for their tax bracket. <laughs> this, of course, led to creative forms of tax avoidance, boarding up windows and constructing houses that were practically unlivable with no natural light in some rooms. Okay, so it's safe to say that the window tax isn't the answer, right? Mm -hmm. And the problem, of course, the tax is that, you know, the window tax is trying to deal with is that there's always this balancing act between scalable policy that serves the majority, that gathers enough revenue, and pleases enough constituents to stay in government. And whichever side you sit on in this debate, it seems as though the Albanese labor government will continue with the cuts. Regardless of your political persuasions, as investors, we must focus on the real outcomes of policy and what it'll mean for you. So if you're a high-income earner, this means more cash. We like to think that our job is to help you navigate the current and future environment, market, tax, regulatory, all of it, within the confines of your circumstances. And for high-income earners, the increase in cash flow associated with the stage three tax cuts seems to be, like we said, a very possible reality. And it's easy for many of us when we receive a pay increase, if we come into a bonus, or we receive unexpected cash flow to allow for lifestyle creep to set in. Again, I looked at you, Mark. I know. I'm aware. <laughs> lifestyle creep occurs when your expenditures grow with your income. And this isn't always bad. I spend more money than 20-year-old Shani. I also don't live in a share house and I don't eat cheese toasties most nights for dinner. Although occasionally, and I did send you a picture of this. And I, did, I. I didn't know what they were. But yes. It's my student nachos. So I get, I actually had really fancy like the mission tortilla chips now, but back then it was the Aldi corn chips and then some salsa on top, some cheese, and then chuck it in the microwave I mean, <laughs> and then eat it. It was delicious. Um, but I still eat that anyway. Um, but it seems that my quality of life and my culinary tastes have improved, Mark. Slightly, yes. But once again, we make money to live. And of course, we want to live comfortably. The difference is the intention. So intentional spending gives us control over the outcomes of our money. When we have extra cash flow, intentional actions can mean the difference between spending it without much improvement to our lives and intentionally directing it on things that we truly value. And then combine extra cash flow with time. It could mean a holiday sooner, paying off your mortgage earlier, or having enough of an emergency fund to provide peace of mind and prevent discomfort. So we asked investment professionals and the creep on this podcast what they would do with this extra money. And that's what we're going to talk about today. All right. So maybe let's start with us. Mark, what would you do with the extra money at each of the levels or just with extra cash flow in general? Yeah. So I think you you said this before that you know a tax cut of this magnitude is effectively the equivalent of a good raise. So I'm just going to go through the same process I've gone through with each raise I've received in my career. And I've always tried to be deliberate, as we were talking about, intentional. 
and of course had some structure around the way that I've handled raises. So when I was younger, it just occurred to me that a raise is both an opportunity, but also a little bit of a risk to my financial well-being. And what you were talking about, Shani, I saw many people simply let lifestyle creep take over as their salaries increased. And there's always ways to spend more money. And ultimately, after that, a little initial period of pleasure that comes from increasing our spending, it quickly becomes a new bare minimum or floor to our lifestyle. And then we just devise new things to spend money on, if only, of course, we got another salary increase. So spending more also has other financial implications because it means that we should increase our emergency fund savings to match the increase in expenses. And it becomes harder to save for retirement as we need a larger portfolio to support a more expensive lifestyle. So as I got each raise, and I'll do the same thing with this upcoming tax cut, I take the time to reassess my goals. Am I saving enough towards my goals? And could increased savings bring down the required rate of return needed to achieve my goals? A lower required rate of return increases the likelihood that a goal is achieved. So in my current situation, I have two main goals, which I've talked about a lot on here. And the first is, of course, retirement. And in this case, I am comfortable that I'm on track to achieve my goal and that my required rate of return is reasonable and does not need to be brought down further by increased savings. And then my next goal is to use investment accounts to fund travel through income generated from my holdings. So my plan is to have a new account switch to paying out income to pay for my travel every five years. So in this case, my next account, which will raise my travel income by about 50%, will kick in during 2024 when I turn 45. So I don't really believe that increasing my savings into this account is needed given the scale of that increase in income. And I'm also pretty comfortable that I'm on track with the next account that I plan to kick in at 50 and don't really believe additional savings are needed. So then just taking a step back and looking at the overall risk to my financial position, the biggest risk is a large-scale rent increase. So as a renter, and certainly given current rental conditions, I believe that it's likely my rent will meaningfully increase when my lease expires in March of 2020. 2024. I don't know what year I'm making up there. <laughs> so my plan is just to save three quarters of the tax cuts into my emergency fund, which effectively banks the money, which can then be redirected towards a rent increase that I'm expecting. That way I can ensure my lifestyle will not have to change given increases in what I pay for housing. So while my emergency fund is adequate right now, never hurts to have more money in there. This will help with another risk, of course, to my financial well-being again, which is losing my job. And as Shawnee, well, I guess this is actually, I describe myself as moderately competent at my job. You would not even do that. But that obviously makes it a risk that I would lose it. And since I'm a very old man, it is <laughs> likely going to be a longer process for me to find a new job. So I think a larger emergency fund will be the best use of the money. All right. I talked for a long time. <laughs> Shani, what about you? All right, I'm going to keep this short and sweet. Uh, I think something important to call out is, although we've mentioned these lump sum numbers per year, that's not how it will be practically received. So I can choose to obviously save the surplus and invest it all at once, but I'll be receiving a higher take-home pay each paycheck. So I'll put it to work as soon as I've received it. And I've mentioned before that with every pay increase that I get or every bonus that I get, 
I increase or add to my salary sacrifice contributions for super. I'd use part of my increase to increase my salary sacrifice contributions. And I also have three main financial goals outside of super that I want to achieve before retirement. Um, And one of these goals is to help with certain costs for loved ones. And this is a goal that has about a 10 to 15 year uh, runway left. It's one of those goals where it is incredibly hard to define an amount because the costs are unknowable. And as we all know, we're all working with a finite amount of resources. So I think a couple of things that that have shaped how I approach this goal is a very broad estimate of costs and what I can afford to put away. And it would bring me a lot more peace of mind to be able to put away a little more. So I direct part of my payment to that. So in summary, two long-term goals that will both give me peace of mind where I can really put my money to work over a long time horizon. Morningstar Investor is built for investors by investors. It provides independent research and data on over 40,000 securities, tools to build and maintain an investment portfolio, and investor education resources to support you, regardless of where you are in your investing journey. Explore opportunities with our monthly global best ideas. Explore our ETF model portfolios. Plan better with two years of dividend forecasts for ASX-listed stocks. And stay informed with independent thought leadership. We've built tools to help you construct, monitor, and maintain your portfolio, including our Portfolio Manager, integrated with one of Australia's leading portfolio tracking tools, ShareSight. Morningstar has been empowering investor success for over 35 years. We're passionate about your outcomes and are here every step of the way as you achieve them. Take out a free four-week trial to access our resources. Find the details in the episode notes. Let's go out and get the thoughts from a couple of our other investment professionals at Morningstar. So let's start with Brian Hahn. So Brian is a director of equity research. He covers telecoms, media, and leisure. He's actually also a comedian, Shani. And he is is pretty funny just around the office in general, especially the other day when he wore a bucket hat to the office, (laughs) although I do not think he was trying to be funny with that. But Anyone who watches our analyst Q&As will probably know Brian. So he's certainly very switched on and can generate a couple laughs at the same time. Yeah, not really. That was like a dating profile I just went through, by the way. it's very complimentary. I know. Uh, But it's not really an easy feat when it comes to investing. Uh, But Brian's advice was don't overthink it. He said, put all of it in a global equities or an emerging markets index fund and forget about it. Don't even try to time the market about when to get into the index fund. Just do it. Then leave the resilience and ingenuity of the human race and market economy to work their magic of compounding on that money. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. So he added, the chances are in 10 to 20 years time, that money will amount to a great sum without you having wasted a single minute or dollar being swayed by daily market noises emanating from fear and greed. But he did acknowledge that there are some people that do like to overthink it. And he's got a plan for those people as well. So he said, spend half the money on time-tested books on investments, business building, psychology, philosophy, and biographies of eminent or dubious historical characters in any field. And every time you finish one of these books and think you've learned a lesson or two from it, spend a small portion of the rest of the money on stuff you really enjoy as a reward. The chances are by the time you finished all the books, you would be much wiser having profited from the experiences of all those who went before you and got to have some treats along the way as a bonus. So whichever option you choose, 
The magic of compounding will benefit you greatly over the long term, whether in money or in wisdom. Love it, Brian. If we ask people to listen to Investing Compass and then invest a portion of their money after it, we'd probably have a rally on SJ. It's always a good idea to invest in SJ. Yeah. But <laughs> this is also general advice. Everyone, please listen this is general to the disclaimer. <laughs> Hopefully, everyone knows now that SJ is a bit of a joke between us. But I think, Shani, in this rally you're foreseeing, you're probably overestimating how many people listen to the podcast. That's but probably true. Anyway, let's go to another one of our stock pickers at Morningstar. And we'll go to Matthew Hodge, and he runs our equity research department in Australia and is Brian's boss. And his answer was, it depends. I think that's also, it's a very good answer for a podcast with a general advice disclaimer. Yeah, it's better than recommending SJ. <laughs> um, but he said, though, in practice, just adding it to the mortgage is not a bad habit, even if it's just another portion of the benefit. So if disciplined, investing the difference is likely to be a better strategy longer term so long as the returns are superior to the savings on interest from the mortgage. It's not a high bar in terms of return expectations in the long run, but the challenge there is staying the course. So it becomes more disciplined in psychology rather than any special investor insight. And if it's possible to set up an automated rule to make automated deposits to a select fund, ETF, or other investment, then that would seem an appropriate approach. That is a very Morningstar answer. It, it is a very Morningstar answer. And we've got one more person left. So mm -hmm. Graham Hand. Graham Hand runs our newsletter, First Links, and he is an editorial director at Morningstar. All right. So he said, a question to any anybody on where would you put the extra funds and why it requires a personal context. We're all different. He pointed out he is... 65 years old. He's worked in senior roles in financial markets for 45 years. He's placed the maximum allowed into superannuation each year. He has not had a mortgage since the 1980s and his kids left home long ago, but he still has a dog. He says, you don't need a compound interest calculator to realize he's more focused on the new tax on superannuation balances over 3 million than the stage three tax cuts. He goes on to say he appreciates the sentiment of eliminating bracket creep in the personal tax system but the government could better target ways to spend the money. There is a strong case to modify the changes before they come into effect, leaving the larger tax breaks for lower income levels. And Graham really gave us a little bit of everything there, right? You know, he gave us a career summary. He said why he thinks the tax policy is wrong. But <laughs> yeah. he did go on, but he did go on to answer the question. Yeah. And but it was very good that Graham said that context is important, but he talked about where he would put his marginal investment dollars. So he says, my portfolio includes growth assets and Aussie equities, global equities, infrastructure, property, and alternatives. But lately, he has increased his allocation to cash and floating rate bonds. So he's done this in the last year or two to protect capital in the face of considerable uncertainty. Rising interest rates mean an investment such as a hybrid with a major Aussie bank is paying a floating rate currently around 7% which is more than he expects from equities this year. So he's pretty cautious because of the impact of higher rates on consumers and companies, earnings declines in the US, war and geopolitical conflict, and sustained inflation. So given his defensive attitude right now, lower taxes will lead to more cash invested in bonds or cash, 
for the rest of the time period as central banks and markets struggle to resolve the excess liquidity of recent years. These are all great answers, but they have a recurring theme. They're based on personal circumstances and preferences of the responders. We know know that this podcast might not seem like it is for everyone and that we've aimed this at high income earners. Practically, though, this advice goes for any investor that's able to find a surplus in their budget and wants to put it to work. And it's also important to acknowledge that for a lot of people, recently we've seen costs skyrocket. Inflation has impacted almost everything from food, entertainment, leisure, travel. It costs more to do almost everything. This has resulted in a lot of people cutting back and reducing spending. Sometimes this is a good thing. If you've experienced lifestyle creep, this can bring you back a couple of squares and allow the stage three tax cut to pump into your investments. For others, this has meant severely cutting back on their quality of life. Unfortunately, the research shows that for these people, they are mostly in the camps that have already received their tax cuts in stage one and two. And we're not here to say that investing is the be all and end all. Investing is a means to an end, and you shouldn't feel guilty about spending money that you've earned. Again, we want to come back to intention. Intentional spending, saving, and investing is the key to ensuring the right balance. Understanding that foregoing cash today means that you may have more in the future. Understanding that sometimes you need that money today. Regardless, ensure there is intent behind your decisions. So thank you very much for listening to our episode on the Stage 3 Tax Cuts. As always, my email address is available in the show notes, and you can email me congratulations to Will, and I will pass that on. And if anyone is crying after hearing this news, please send us a picture. We can compare (laughs) it to Shawnee crying before this podcast. Thank you very much. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.